Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Dr. Roy F. Baumeister. Dr. Baumeister is the New York Times bestselling author of Willpower, and he's a research psychologist at the University of Queensland who studies why normal adults think feel, and act the way they do. He's especially known for his work on the self and identity, the negativity effect, self-control, self-esteem, and how people find meaning in life. Today, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Baumeister about his latest book, The Power of Bad, how the negativity effect rules us and how we can rule it. In this book, Dr. Baumeister dissects some of his most cited research, uh, including one of his papers that's been cited over 7,000 times, looking at why bad things are so much more impactful in our lives than good things are. We're going to talk about things like how to deliver bad news and criticism and feedback to people. We're going to talk about why teenagers can be in such a bad mood when they've experienced social rejection and what to do about that. We're even going to talk about vaping. But first, let's talk about the four to one ratio of good to bad and why when you lose it with your teenager, it's not quite as easy as just apologizing and making up. Dr. Baumeister, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You have been doing really well-cited research in the field of social psychology for a long time. I love your book, Willpower. A lot of people do as well. And so really interested to know why your most recent book, you decided to write it about bad and about the negativity effect and why bad things tend to be so much more impactful than good things. Well, we, we chose this book. Uh, I worked it out with my, my buddy, John Tierney, who's a, used to write for a science writer for the New York Times. And like most researchers, I have several long-running programs of research. Uh, but uh, I did this paper that's outside of all my other stuff. I just sort of noticed a pattern in reading the literature that uh, psychologically bad things seem to have stronger effects than good things. So... I got together uh, a couple of colleagues and we uh, wrote an article and reviewed it in multiple fields and and published it in kind of a medium journal and didn't think that much more about it. But uh, over the years, it's become hugely cited. Uh, It's like number two out of my 700 publications. And so we kind of realized this is a much bigger deal than I (laughs) had thought at the time. After uh, Tierney and I had written the Willpower book, we were uh, thinking about what to write next, and we had a couple ideas. And uh, he looked over things and said, "Well, this this uh, 
Bad is Stronger Than Good was the title of the research article. Uh, I said, this this could really be something. And it linked in with uh, his ideas. He knows a lot more about politics and uh, business and stuff like that than I do. So uh, we, we we settled on that. That was, that was the reason for uh, choosing that one. I, I like working with him. And uh, I think it's a real important life lesson. I've had several professors at other places say, this is something I tell my students, that this is something you can use as you go through life. I just realize that the mind is programmed to overreact to bad things relative to good things. Uh, and you need to adjust to that and deal with that. And it should affect how you uh, treat other people and how you even understand your own mind getting carried away with uh, uh, with bad things and understand what's going on in, in, in the world and in the media. Uh, Tierney, who'd spent his career in journalism, said uh, everything has to be a crisis. There's sort of pressure from editors to make a big deal out of everything. Right. And, and he said it, it's such an irony because Life is really getting better and better by all objective measures. People live longer and happier and more comfortable lives than ever in the past. And yet the media and the books are all full of doomsayers and predictions of imminent disaster. And he said, well, how can we put this together? Why are people so obsessed with impending disasters that mostly never occur? Some of the things that you pointed out in the introduction to this book I thought were so fascinating, and I think uh, there may be ideas from the paper that you published or other things that you've kind of picked up from other researchers as well, but even just some of these like simple ideas like uh, that there are so many words for negative things but not corresponding words, opposite words for positive things, like there's no opposite of trauma. <laughs> Yes, well, that's a big thing. I mean, a trauma is a, a single bad event that affects you for weeks, months, years thereafter. For the rest of your life, you're scarred. and yeah. yeah. Whereas there's no corresponding word and then probably no corresponding phenomenon for a single good thing. Right. Uh, that changes you. People might talk about a religious conversion as having a lasting effect. Mm, right. But, uh, you know, apart from that, you know, in terms of the, the diversity of things that traumatize people, uh, there, there's nothing like it. it. You know, in sex, for example, a really bad experience can affect your, your your sexual feelings and responses for the rest of your life. But a good experience, no matter how good, uh, doesn't. Maybe you're walking on air for a couple of days, but then you kind of just get come back down to reality. Well, my colleagues have actually done research on uh, uh, relationships that uh, in in say marriage or thing. You know, sex has about a three day after the. <laughs> That their yep. you know, good sex between spouses has makes them happy about three days, and then then their uh, then their happiness goes back down to where it was before. Yeah. So, what is it about bad things that makes them so much more salient, and that they can have such more long lasting effects? Well, we think the mind is designed that way probably for evolutionary purposes. Uh, I should give a little bit of the story of how we came around to this when we were. Originally, reading through the literature and finding this here, here and there, we said, well, let's find out what the exceptions are, because that'll make an interesting theory. We can say, well, bad is stronger than good over here and here, but not in all these other places. Right. So something about here and here, that's what explains it. This is how psychology researchers think. Only we couldn't find exceptions. It was just there <laughs> everywhere. Uh, and so it was a little disappointing because we you know, it would make a more interesting and complicated theory. 
but it added the excitement that wow we must be dealing with one of the basic properties of the mind mm. so we had to look and you know evolutionary past something to shape it at that basic a level and, and there's even findings with say rats in the laboratory that show they react more strongly to bad things than good things so again it's 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 not like something we've learned in school or whatever it is deeply embedded in the mind and the way we act to that is think about you know evolution uh, and avoiding bad things is much more crucial and evolution is about surviving and, and reproducing uh, life has to win every day death only has to win once right so the people or even the very simple animals long thousands millions of years ago who were excessively attentive to danger and threat and poison and, and killers and so on uh, they probably survived better than the ones that uh, were focused on pleasures and happiness and didn't uh, uh, didn't worry as much about the bad things so it's hard to prove that, that that's what happened a million years ago right. uh, but something like that has to be the case for it to be this widespread because again we found it over and over in one sphere after another one of the things you write about in here is that when it comes to child rearing bad parenting scars children but being especially conscientious doesn't reliably make children happier or healthier and it's kind of a theme throughout the book you also talk about this hotel in new york um, and like this the game of trying to get good reviews and um uh, kind of across the board there's this phenomenon where you're better off spending your energy trying to avoid the really bad or please the people who are maybe going to leave a one-star review who are really really negative and some similar thing with parenting here it sounds like you know um when really bad things happen you know that can really scar a kid so focusing your energy on trying to avoid that is like better uh, almost use of your parenting energy than trying to have all these really good experiences or be overly conscientious or something. Yes, yes. Uh, it's, it's sort of become a thing in our culture that uh, you want to do everything perfect and you have to be the perfect mother or the perfect father, get exactly the right music to play in the crib and do exactly the right things and so on. But the researchers who study child development say ah, you should just try to be a good enough mother if you're in the top 95 percent it doesn't make that much difference in terms of how well the kids turn out if you're the super mother and do everything perfect your kids might turn out great or they might turn out just so-so and if as long as you're not really in the bottom five percent uh or thereabouts you know, then you can really mess your kid up but, right. but uh, um how kids turn out depends on a lot of things on their schools uh, it's a strong argument that the peer group makes a much bigger deal uh, than the parents do. One argument is that the, the role of the parents is to get your kids into a, uh, a neighborhood and a school system and so on where they can have good peers because uh, uh, those are the ones that, that really shape the personality of the kid, not so much uh, what the parents teach them. Uh, so all this excessive worry about being being the perfect mother or father uh, is really unnecessary and, and, and unhelpful. There's even pretty solid data on, uh, you know, intelligence, which is a mixture of the genes you get from your parents yeah. uh, and your experiences, that uh, that bad parents, well, let me start with the good parents, uh, the, the good parents 
uh, it's really just the genes. You don't improve your children's intelligence mm. by being good parents. You just enable them to perform up to the level of their, their genetic capability. Uh, but the link between the genetic endowment and the kid's intelligence is much weaker with bad parents. Bad parents can mess your kid up and make the kid less intelligent uh, than his or her potential. That kind of data is, I think, quite quite impressive. So yeah. again, you can't you can't make the kid better, but you can make the kid worse. So right. mainly avoid doing the bad things. Yeah, you can sort of help them to fulfill what their natural capability is, but you're not going to lift right. them up above that. Um, right, and you can lift them above that, but you can knock them way below. That, you right? can prevent them from getting there. Yeah. Uh, another interesting point you had on the next page was don't expect credit for going the extra mile, which I guess is closely related. But um, I think often this is this is like a common thing with parents where we feel so unappreciated. And I did all this, you know, uh, I went all above and beyond and did all this extra stuff and it's not even being registered. Yes, this is something actually John, my, my co-author, noticed and uh, he found it like in business that, you know, you order something and they'll tell you we'll have it next Wednesday. If you get it on Monday or Tuesday, you're like, oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's not a big deal. You know, it uh, you don't really give them much credit. But if you get it late, if it's Thursday or Friday, <laughs> yeah. probably, probably on Wednesday. What's wrong uh, so. Uh, you don't really get much credit. You know, oh, I'm supposed to come Wednesday. Here it is on Tuesday. Oh, that's nice. Nice, cool. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but, uh, and the same thing with say showing up to a meeting, uh, being ten minutes late. You know, but being ten minutes early doesn't give you any uh, any extra credit. So again, all those things uh, to get along with people well, and whether it's in business or relationships or whatever, avoid doing the bad things. That's that's much more important. Uh, and, you know, I periodically ask my students, okay, why do you think someone should have a relationship with you? What make you a desirable partner? And they all say positive things. You know, I'm a good listener. I'm supportive. But those things don't make that much of a difference. The, the big thing, people who study relationships say they're really affected by the bad things. If you mm -hmm. can avoid saying something nasty when you're uh, in a bad mood or you're frustrated, if you can mm. avoid uh, wasting the couple's money on some uh, stupid venture, if you can uh, just, you know, avoid being late when you promise them you'll be there at a certain time. Those things carry a lot more weight in terms of the, uh, the quality of the relationship. People think their relationships get better and better, uh, but the, the researchers who track them over time say, uh, really not so much. They mostly start off good because, you know, you're attracted to each other and oh, well, yeah, yeah, right. he's great, he's and so basically they either stay the same or they go downhill. The, the task for maintaining a good relationship is to avoid the going downhill. And that's uh, what's caused by the bad things and especially bad responses to bad things. When one is unpleasant and the other it's unpleasant in reply. Uh, in response, that's what starts the downhill spiral uh, going much faster. The practical advice is uh, be attentive to the bad things you do and don't do them. And if you do bad things, then we have the, the rule of four. Uh, don't think, well, I, I kind of annoyed my partner last week, so I better do something nice uh, to make it up to him or her. Uh, try to do four things. <laughs> do that, you'll be in much better shape because the one good thing won't make up, it may in your mind. Right. One good thing makes up the one bad thing. But 
not to them and not to the relationship. It, it takes it takes about four to break even. So there's a really interesting section of the book about delivering bad news or kind of harsh feedback. And um, I think a lot of the ways that we've been taught to do it is the sandwich approach, where we sandwich the bad thing in between two good things. But you point out in here that that's maybe not a good way to do it. Why not? Well, there's a bit of a psychological thing here. And if I have to give you some bad news about your performance, I don't really like to say it because it's not pleasant for me. You don't right. really want to hear it. And so the temptation for me is to postpone that. Right. So I start off with going through the good things. But, you know, you you know something's coming. So <laughs> right. Come on, get to the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, get to the point. Right. So, you know, you might have some introductory remarks or an overall impression. But then get to the bad stuff right away. It's usually not as bad as, as your worst case fear. Yeah. So tell the bad. Uh, and then after the person digests that, then they're ready to hear some good stuff. I mean, that's how the mind works on its own, too. You accept the bad and then it starts to look for ways to make things better. So you, you hit them, well, this this was the worst thing. But uh, and then you accept that for a moment. And then, well, but then all, on the other hand, there are all these uh, good things. So uh, there's, there's plenty to work with. And uh, you just got to fix, fix that. Bad and then thing. I like, yeah, then you come back to the bad thing also a little bit at the end so that you do make sure that you leave them with you don't just leave them with all the good stuff well yeah i don't know if you need to do that they, okay. they certainly heard it although <laughs> yeah people are surprisingly defensive in some cases and uh i've heard like professor you know chairs of the department saying when you give your annual feedback to those people i told him this was what he was doing right. wrong nobody wouldn't uh selective hearing yeah, yeah. But uh, again, that's another reason to bring it up first, so you make sure they they get the message. And uh, it's an art, and there may be no perfect way to deliver criticism to others. But uh, when people know there's good and bad, they're certainly vigilant for the bad. Uh, so they're not really paying attention to the rest of it until you get to uh, get to the bad stuff first. So it's more like an open-faced sandwich. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of stuff in here on punishment versus rewards and um, what motivates people to behave well. I think we like to reward people because it feels better. <laughs> but exactly, yeah. yeah. But people learn fast. Even, even rats learn faster with punishment than reward. Huh. It seems to be a, a basic property. This has been a big thing in the schools because they, they always want to think, well, we could get away with giving bad grades and oh you shouldn't even mark papers with red ink anymore because it's too negative right so just just focus on the positive uh but uh first of all in terms of information for learning getting both good and bad is the best thing i mean my my professor who uh, sponsored my dissertation i think his educational philosophy was that if you just deliver a lot of really good criticism 
thorough and thoughtful and so on, then you don't need to bother with praise. <laughs> <laughs> His students who survived all had pretty healthy confidence in themselves. Otherwise, they fell apart. Uh, but he turned out quite a few of us, and we learned a lot from him. Huh. But then I worked with somebody who gave both praise and criticism, and I thought, oh, this makes it a lot easier to learn faster. So on a pure informational basis, you need to supply both. That's the most effective for uh, for learning. But if it's one or the other, criticism works better than praise. They're nicely controlled studies, like they will give children uh, a jar and say, well, every time you get one right, you can put a marble in it, we'll give you a marble. Or they give other children one full of marbles and say, well, every time you get one wrong, we'll take one out. So it's the same contingency, a marble for a right answer. But the kids learned a lot faster uh, <laughs> when the marbles are being taken away for wrong answers than when they're being given them for right answers. There's even, I think we mentioned it in the book, a follow-up study with teachers. It was the same thing. Uh, that the teachers were supposed to teach their kids to reach a certain level on the on the region-wide test at the end of the year. They did half of it, told the teachers that you'll get a big bonus if, you, if you know, 60% of your kids uh, reach this criterion. The others, they give them a bonus at the start of the year and said, well, you have to pay it back if the kids don't. It's exactly the same amount of money, right, uh, the yeah. same criteria, the same everything. Uh, but even the teachers showed the same thing. Their students did a lot better when the teachers had the money and were afraid of losing it than when they were going to possibly get it as a bonus. So yeah, punishment is, for better or worse, is an important part of learning. And uh, the attempts to get rid of it are just weakening the, the whole educational project. But it strikes me that what these studies show is that it is really a matter of framing. And it it's almost the same exact thing that you're offering um, in both of these scenarios. Or you have another study in here that you talk about workers in a factory. Some of them, they tell them if you meet your goal at the end of the week, you get an extra you know, bonus on your next paycheck. Whereas the other ones, they just increase their paycheck. And they say, if you don't meet your goals, we're going to deduct it from your paycheck. Same exact thing, but it's just whether it's framed as a bonus or framed as a penalty has a big impact on what actually, uh, how, how well the person yeah. performs. And that shows you how you can work with this property of the mind to get best results. Yeah. I understand the mind is designed to overreact to bad things more than to good things. So set up the, the situation, as you say, frame things uh, to take advantage of that. Yeah, instead of um, telling your kids that you give them $200 for every A, just give them the $200 now and say they'll, they'll owe you money for every B. We're here with Dr. Roy Baumeister talking about his research on why bad things can have such a bigger influence on your teenager than good things can. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. We used to tell our daughter, okay, it's, it's fine to be upset when things go against you. It's not fine to be mean to other people. Again, we worry a lot about the kids, but hard evidence that uh, vaping is bad for kids is, is lacking, and especially if it, if it reduces their actual cigarette smoking. Say 30, 40 years ago, if you went to a party and kind of met somebody and had an interesting conversation, 
had something in common with him. Well, you might never see him again unless you exchange phone numbers and somebody took the trouble to call. You know, that's just gone. But it, it's much easier to send an email after this. And so the relationships that started out in the world offline can be cultivated and strengthened. And especially mm. these days with the lockdown and so on, you might meet someone and then not have a chance to see the, the person in person again for for months. Uh, but if you can send emails back and forth now and then, you can sort of keep it going. And, and so they have the real potential to, to do good. But again, they're not a substitute for in-person live relationships. They're, they're just something that can can strengthen those. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.